our story has led us to a point to where Joseph's 10 brothers are standing right before him, are really bowing down to him, and we've talked about that last week. They didn't recognize his brother. They didn't know that that, that was him standing there. They've just come to Egypt to buy food for the family. Now, when you think of buying food, think about buying food for your family, okay, and you think, oh, okay, money, you know. Think about buying all six months' worth of food, approximately, all at one time. So then dollar signs start to go up, okay? So think of multiple families. Think of all of our church family here putting all our money in one basket and going buying food at one time for six months. So they're carrying a lot of money. So it would have been divided up in their, their sacks, possibly the, the sacks they were going to bring back the grain. So the money would have been there. So kind of have that in your mind as, as we're thinking about here. But Joseph has wondered his whole life about his family. He's wondered about, you know, why did they do this? Uh, why did they beat me? Why did they sell me? I wonder how they're doing in, in those nostalgic moments of, man, I wish I was back with my family versus the moments of, man, I can't believe my brothers did that to me. You know, you, you kind of, you see the swing back and forth. Um, you know, does his brothers feel regret at all? You know, and now they, now he's realized through the conversation of what we talked about last week, they've kind of carried this guilt all their lives. So he moves ahead with a plan to test how honest and how, how far their sorrows actually go. And he accuses them of being, you know, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew spies, and it's a ploy to, to get them to return back to him. So he's planning on keeping one brother in jail. And in, and in, in fact, we see that in 42.18. It says, it says, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of the brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that, uh, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. So jump down to verse 24 here. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So Joseph let, uh, lets them all kind of feel it one more time. I'm taking one of your brothers. You know, that same feeling of when they sold off their brother. I'm keeping one. You don't have possession of him. He is not free. Now, we don't know why he chose Simeon, um, it, but, you know, nothing is doing is, is really random here. Maybe it's because Simeon was the ringleader of the time before. We don't really know. It doesn't say. Maybe it was because it was Leah's, you know, the second born of Leah, and there were some issues there. I, we, don't, we just don't know. But verse 25, it says, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and give, it to them, give them the provisions for their journey. So we see the struggle in Joseph. In, in one sense, he's kind of hashed his plan. He wants to see his family back, and he wants to punish them. But in another sense, he wants to take care of his family. He not only sells him the grain, which I don't know if I would have. You know what I'm saying? You know? But he sells them the grain. He not only does that, he puts their money that they, they gave him for the grain back in the sacks. Or he has his minions do it, okay? It's not like he's over there putting it all back in, okay? But, you know, he's also given them provision. He's giving them food for the journey back. So on top of what they just bought, he is providing even more for them. This is an amazing thing. And, and I want you to remember this toward the end of the sermon. He is providing even more than what they deserve. And that's gonna, we're going to wrap it all up here uh, toward the end. I, it, it's going to be really fun. So, so Joseph, you know, it's not his responsibility, but he takes care of them nonetheless. 
But he's also testing them. Will they leave Simeon here and never come back? Will they come back? Will they return as he has asked them to? That's what he's testing. It says in verse, at the end of verse 25, After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on the donkeys and left. At, this, at, at the place where they had stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. And I'm sure all the other ones started looking in their sacks at that point, you know. Something is happening. Something is wrong. They get the feeling of like, you know, I swore I paid for my grain, but it's right here. Did I forget, you know, the, all those mind tricks and, and so forth. So he's trying to figure out what is going on. And then it says their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is it that God has done to us? Now, this is very sad. This is, this is, you know, it's probably the first time they've thought about God in a long time. It's the first time they've even kind of gone there. You know, men who have lived with God's blessings their entire lives, but don't really talk about him that much. Don't really, you know, God's not a part of their everyday life. They're so much unlike their brother Joseph. Joseph, who is a teenager, he says to Potiphar's wife, most likely a very nice-looking woman. Okay, you don't get up to that level in that society without all that. You know what I'm saying. He was saying, how could you do such a thing? It's a sin against my God. As an inmate in prison, Joseph says to the butler and the baker, and he, you know, he, or he, he, interpretations belong to God. In front of Pharaoh, he says, it is not in me to give an answer. It is, the God, it is my God who will show me the Hebrew God. Then his chief of staff at the age of 30, it is God who has made me forget all of my, all of my troubles. It is God, it is God who has caused, uh, caused me to be faithful. Talking to his brothers at age 38, I fear the Hebrew God. God, be gracious to you. You can see the total difference between Joseph and his brothers at this point. Yet they have lived under the blessing. Joseph has lived under a blessing, but a whole different type of blessing. The blessing of going to jail. The blessing of being a slave. Now, we don't look at those as blessings, but God was watching over him. God was gracious to him during that time. The next chapter at age 40, he, you know, he's talking to his father, and, and he says, God gave me these two sons. In the final year of his life, God made all of this happen. God will take care of you guys. Joseph always thinks of God. Joseph always talks about God. Unlike his ten brothers who never mention God until something is happening. You know, I mean, you're spies and all that, and they're laying down before him, and, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and they're going, I knew this was going to come back to haunt us. God is, God is finally coming back to, to deal with it. You know, so it's in a negative sense. Now, why did God allow this to happen? What, what's going on with the money in the sack? Ah! You see the difference? We shouldn't only think of God in the negative. They didn't know Joseph's God very well, even though they grew up in the same house. A very wealthy household. Yet something about his household that they grew up not knowing about God. The only one who got to know God is the one that got stripped of everything. What is it about growing up in a household like this 
that has prevented them from knowing God? Well, Jacob was somewhat of a conniver. God told him he was going to bless him, and he blessed him immensely with dreams and visions and, and promises. And, you know, and, and Jacob has taken risk for God. He's taken steps of faith, and, of faith and, and God has tremendously blessed him during those times. But somewhere along the line, that did not translate over to the boys, to the family. Here in today's story, in this bag was a huge amount of money. All that food that they had to bring back, not only for the family, but for, for, the, you know, for the horses or the cattle or the donkeys or whatever animals they had, they had to feed those also. I mean, this, this was a cause for celebration. Man, this guy, of, you know, this prince of Egypt is, is, you know, very generous. He gave us provisions. He let us go. He wants to meet our little brother, and, and, and he returned the money. But they don't think like that. This is not a time for celebration for them. They don't have the capacity to think in a positive response. I mean, this is how it goes for them. Hey, how was your day? Ah. And the person's thinking in their head, sorry I asked. But you see, every day is a rough day for them. They don't have a capacity for a good day. All sorts of, of great things could be happening, and they don't recognize it. It begs the question, what great things happen to us on a daily basis that we don't even recognize? The other day, I was irritated. I know, hard for you guys to imagine, but I'm just saying, I was irritated. We have a set schedule in our house in the morning. Okay, I won't tell you all the details of my schedule and Brandon's schedule. We both get up early and stuff. It's just our bodies wake up, okay? And this morning, 5 o'clock a.m., boom, I was up. My wife goes, you wonder where Brandon gets it from? You know, I mean, just, it's not because I'm super spiritual. It's just my body says, get up at 5 a.m. That's just, you know how it is. But we have the schedule, and we were running late on getting the boys out the door. And of course, I'm not the problem, of course, you know. It's got to be my wife and my kids, you know. So I'm just like irritated, and we were supposed to be taking a couple of friends with us to school. So I'm just like, ah, get the kids in the stinking car, you know. So we get in the car, and we're driving along on Tulare Avenue, and there's a line of, of cars. You know, we're coming down Tulare Avenue. There's a line of cars and a bus there in the front. And the bus is waiting to turn left. And a car had gone around the bus where you could not see it. And then about 20 seconds before I got to the intersection, went across the intersection blindly. And I'm going 60 miles per hour. If I would have been 10 seconds earlier, if the Lord hadn't said, slow your hind end down, Alan, I would have nailed the person. What blessings do we miss during the day that we don't even recognize, that God doesn't even show us? But these boys, they don't see it. It's not just a bad attitude. Their brains have been etched like this with guilt and shame. What they've done. They just assume that anything supernatural happens around them, oh, it's not good. It's not good. We're toast. I mean, we've already been accused of being spies, and, and now we're thieves also. 
Not a thought to maybe Joseph was being kind to them. Not a thought to, man, he gave us extra provisions for the trip. Maybe he did it to scare them. I don't know. But if anyone wants to scare me with money, hey, I'm all for it. Just throw it at me, you know. I I won't react like them. But they're not wired to receive grace. You know why? They're a bunch of deceivers. They're a chip off the old block. They learn the negative parts from dad. So when something good happens, they see bad motivations. They don't even trust God. They think God's motivations are always negative. You know, I believe that uh, our reaction to things, good or bad, are really an accurate uh, indication of where we stand when it comes to fear and grace. Our natural reaction when something happens shows us either our fear or our faith. Not the later reaction when we recuperate, you know, when we, when we think things through, but I'm talking about that initial reaction. When something really good happens or something really bad happens, where do we go with our faith? Where's the natural landing spot for your fear? In their case, it was also a general lack of integrity for the whole family. You could go back to Genesis 25 and and see how they treated people. And they learned this from mom and dad. The antidote for, for this or for that is this. Acts of genuine kindness from genuinely good people often are the very thing that dissolve the hard parts. Sometimes we think we need to fight fire with fire. You know what I'm saying? Somebody does something to us or somebody says something to us or somebody cuts us off and we're just like, I'm going to catch up to that. I'm going I'm to cut them off. We fight fire with fire. You talk to my child like that? Oh, wait a second. Let me tell you. Okay, I can't pull that off. But I'm just saying. Our natural reaction there, fire with fire. Man. But then the Spirit of God speaks to you and says, no, we're going to go in the exact opposite direction. You're going to give a little grace. We're not going to act that way because this is not how we should live. This is how they should live. We don't act that way. We're going to give good no matter what happens. And this is hard. This is what Joseph is doing. Now, he does have a little fun messing with him at the same time. But he's giving good here. And at the end of the day, his plans are all for good. If they have repented, if they want to change, he will give the best there is to offer. Hmm. And it will really impact these guys to be handed grace and mercy, especially after everything they've done. And they know what they have done. Difficult people are sometimes made aware of their condition, you know what I'm saying? Kind of when they get woken up just, just a tad, when somebody, you know, really godly comes along in their lives and, and just acts good consistently, and, and they start to see that. Let's bring this home a little bit and talk about why it's so hard to do 
good. Three questions, something I want you to think about between this week and next week. First one, are grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and generosity common in your family, in your household? What about the family you grew up in? Can you picture dad or, or mom being really gracious and merciful? How about grandpa or grandma or aunt or uncle or, or whoever raised you? You know, some of you were raised by a different adult, a brother or sister. Can you picture grace and mercy or do you picture the opposite? Secondly, what negative family trait haunts you? I mean, you say they did this and it kind of haunts you or they, they did that and it, and it really bothers you. Or thirdly, the stuff haunts you, but what has been passed down to you? What do you catch yourself doing? Oh, man, you, you couldn't stand it growing up when your mom or dad or brother or uncle or grandpa or whoever it was did this, whatever that is, yet you find yourself doing the same thing. You don't like it, but do you fight it? What behaviors and attitudes and words and, and ways of doing things, and it's there. And this is your chance to say, God, change me, because I've tried and it hasn't really worked. Now, if you feel like you're going to, you know, like you can start answering some of these questions right now. I mean, most of us have little trouble seeing these things in our life. We just don't want to admit it. These types of questions are uncomfortable. It makes us think about ourselves. We'd rather point out, oh, it was Judy's fault or so-and-so's fault or his fault or her fault or whatever. We'd like to point it out. We don't like to, you know, look back at ourselves because it brings up stuff that should be obvious and it brings it to the surface. Every one of us has certain things, and these sometimes restrict our faith or they fuel our fears. You know, a lot of our behaviors are, are founded on, on either faith or fear. There are reasons we're struggling finding the faith that Joseph found in Egypt. It's because of our fear. And the story leads us here, but we still have a lot of walking to do in the story. Some of us have a long journey to take in dealing with these issues, but it starts to come together for us. But in the journey, amazing things might just happen for us if we allow God to jump into it. As we're going back to Joseph's house, we're really going back to Jacob's house and then turning around if we decide to return quickly. We'll see next week. But on that journey, a lot of thinking's going on. I mean, he keeps being good to us, and he's testing us. Joseph is. But God keeps being good to us, and he keeps testing us and pressing us. There's a goodness to that as we start to understand, as we travel back and forth. What was it that Joseph did or didn't do? What did he do? What didn't he do? I mean, think about that. Things that feed the faith or starve the fear. And that's a good statement there. Do you ever think Joseph struggled with fear at all? I mean, he was in jail. Do you think he struggled with fear? 
Did he ever struggle to have to keep up with the faith in his life? Hmm. Doesn't really say, but he's a human being. I think we could all step in his shoes. And he went through so much. I would imagine there was times when he struggled with all of it. He had to learn to feed the faith and starve the fear. Think about that for a second. Feed the faith and starve the fear. So what do we do when we've either inherited, you know, we have inherited faith or, or some of the fears? Do we just accept the fears and say stuff like, well, I'm Irish, so therefore I drink, or whatever it is. Well, I am, you know, I'm a child of an alcoholic. I was an unwanted child. You know, my wife and I were talking this morning, and I think I've mentioned this before. There comes a point where my wife and I are going to have to stop saying, well, this is my adopted son. Because, I mean, Grace is fully our son, and he's fully integrated into our house. You know what I'm saying? We've had him from birth. But one day when he gets older, he's going to have to deal with the idea that he was adopted. He's going to have to deal with the idea of his mother gave him up. And hopefully through the grace of God, he will understand that. That he's not an unwanted child. I mean, we understand the miracle because I just won't shut up about it. But I'm just saying, we understand the miracle. We understand the story. He doesn't. He doesn't. He'll have to learn it. And hopefully he learns it with that grace that's in there. Others deal with stuff like, man, I come from a divorced family. It's just my family. So therefore, I'll probably end up divorced. You know, you can break that cycle. Is that where we stop? We go to that fear place and just say, well, I'm just this. And we just plop down like a three-year-old. I'm not moving. (laughs) Or do we say, yeah, that was who I was. But this is who I am in Christ. I've been recovered I've been redeemed. I've been changed. I've been transformed with, you know, by the power of Jesus Christ. And without Christ, I could have, and I would have stayed right there. But with Christ, I am made new. I am made new every morning. These things, I don't have to, to grab a hold of these fears and just keep them in me. I don't have to live there. I'm going to feed my faith instead, and I'm going to starve the fear. Well, only one out of the ten brothers became Joseph. Or 11, or 12, or you know what I'm saying. Verse 29, it says, When they came to the father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is lord of the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, and take the food for your starving households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so that I know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. Now, is it just me or some things 
some good things that are right here. That, that the story, you know, that happened to be in the story, but they don't bring up. You know what I'm saying? They're retelling the story, and again, they're focusing on the negative and leaving out the good things. They don't remember them. They, they just can't see them. They're not capable of all that yet. Uh, you know, the extra provisions and the money being back in the sacks and all that. Verse 35, it says, As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was a pouch of silver. And they and their father saw the money pouches. They were frightened. And again, instead of celebrating, they're going to the fear. They're going to the frightening part of it. What is happening to us? Why is this going on? What in the world is going on? You know, Jacob basically goes ballistic here. Verse 36, their father, their, the father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. You ever heard that from a kid? Everything. It's all against me. Now, you use different verbiage and all that kind of stuff. You know, but, but the world's coming, you know, is totally 100% against me. I had a kid in my house several weeks ago, a family friend, and they said something like that. And I just like, I said, really, the whole world's against you, right? You know, I'm just like rolling my eyes. Just, just you know, I, okay, I did it inside, maybe, maybe outside. But I'm just saying, man, the whole world. But this is what he said. Now, the, the word deprived in the Hebrew is a very strong word. It means you have killed my children. So he's telling his brother, I mean his sons, you have killed my children. I mean, this is just sad. He's saying this to his other nine sons. You've killed all my children. I mean, how are they to fear, uh, feel, you know? Well, Dad, I am your son too. You have to wonder, did Joseph, I mean, did Jacob figure out that they, what they did to Joseph? You have to wonder. As Jacob figured out, I mean, they, they came home with a bloody coat and no body. It's not like the animals leave no body parts around. You know what I'm saying? Over in Africa, every so often you'll hear a story of a poacher getting killed by some whatever animals. And how do they know he got killed? Because they go out there and they find the bones. The animals don't take everything. They don't digest everything. So his brothers come back with a bloody coat that sort of feels like human blood, but not really. I mean, he would know the difference. So you wonder if Joseph or Jacob figured out that they had sold him. Not only that, they came home with money in the jiggling in their pockets. Has your child ever shown up with money? in their pockets, and you're sitting there going, hey, where'd, where'd you get that? Now, they're home again, and they've lost another child. He's back in Egypt with some story about Pharaoh taking one of the brothers or one of Pharaoh's officials, and, and now they have extra money again. Hmm. Makes you think. I mean, we know the story we understand how the money got back in the sacks, but Jacob doesn't. Hmm. Have you noticed that dad has just written off another child? He has no plans to go back to Egypt to get him. 
No way another son is going to be sold off by his brothers. There's no way I'm going to allow them to take a, a son back. No, 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 no. Especially not my favorite. I mean, dad is home feeling sorry for himself, and poor Simeon's the one in the Egyptian jail. You know, Jacob, you know, Jacob's world still revolves around who? Jacob. He's awful like a three-year-old. He, he's, you know, he's old, yet he's acting like a three-year-old. My son Grayson, he likes to be first. First to the door to leave the house. First to get into the car. First to win the brace to his bed at bedtime. And if somebody gets in front of him, oh, crocodile tears. I wanted to be first. And just, and when we drive up to daycare, if he sees another kid going in, crocodile tears start going in. He wants to be first. That's what three-year-olds do or almost four-year-olds do. Brandon used to do that, but guess what? He grew up. If he did that now, I'd knock him upside the head and say, get over it. Jacob, as mature as he is in some ways, he's still like a four-year-old going, poor me. Why does this always, always happen to me? When Jacob was a young man, Esau, his brother, had something he wanted. So what did he do? He took it. When he ran from that, he went where? You know, to his uncle's place. And he saw how wealthy his uncle was. So what did he do? He took it. He took his business. He ended up with both his daughters. And then he skates out of town. He spent his whole life doting over one of the daughters, Rachel, the, the one daughter he loved, her two kids, Joseph and Benjamin, didn't care about the other kids that much. Now they're saying that Benjamin needs to go back to Egypt to save Simeon? You've got to be joking. There's no way I'd allow that to happen in Jacob's mind. Now, in Jacob's defense, he's also been through a lot in his life. And at this point in the story, it, you know, it's really about Joseph, not Jacob. But lest we forget that Jacob is also a man of great faith. But at this point in his life, he's just kind of suffering from this fatalistic, you know, grief, like quicksand. Like, I know the next stone is fixed in the drop. That's how he lives his life. Someone needs to pull him out of this fatalism and, and out of this depression. Going back to the scripture in verse 37, it says, Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And trust him to my care, and I will bring him back. Wow, what a statement. I wonder if his sons were standing around going, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Huh? What did he just say? Did he just say what I thought he just said? I mean, I don't think the children would appreciate this tactic in negotiation with grandpa, you know? But this is just, you know, the 1500 B.C. way of saying, or 1800 B.C. way of saying, I have two sons, I get what you're feeling. I understand what you're feeling. You don't want anything bad to happen. Trust me, I will take care of them. I'll take care of the child who you love so much, you know? Probably with a little attitude there. Verse 38 says, But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you, his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, 
you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Once again, he is not saying if anything happened to Benjamin, it would really hurt Benjamin. If anything happens to Benjamin, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to be, you know, I'm just going to die in a sense. Little did old deceiver Jacob know that God was still working on him. God was still making him take risk in his life, the, you know, different things that he wanted him to do to take him through the, the fear and end up in the faith. You know, it's an amazing story and, and what God would still do with him. You know, we look at a Jacob and think, well, God's done with him. I mean, he's got 12 kids, and they've got kids, big family and all this kind of stuff. He's old, he's gray. God is just done with him. But this is how we think. But did you know the older can still teach the younger some things? Wow. Imagine that. God is not done with you at a certain age. Oh, I hit 65. God's done with me. No. God's not done with you until you go to the grave, and he calls you home to heaven. Because only your body goes to the grave. And then God's still not done with you because then you're in heaven. And you've got a whole new level of relationship that continues. See, God is not done with Jacob. He will not, you know, he will not die a bitter old man. God is going to use Joseph to bring healing to his dad. And God is not punishing Jacob at this point in his life because of the past. God has heaped grace upon grace upon grace into his life. We shouldn't think, well, God will eventually punish me for all of the sin. No, because God says if we ask for forgiveness, what happens? Grace and mercy comes. He forgets about the sin. God is teaching. God is developing him. God is disciplining him. See, discipline is different. It's not punitive. It's training. I had this conversation with Brandon a couple of weeks ago about how you know, it's a parent's job to train their children. And children think it's the most excruciating thing to ever happen in their life, you know, you training them. We're talking about how friends and, and how they may do something we, we don't like. But everyone has, this things, uh, the, everyone has things about themselves that may irritate others other people so we should step into their shoes and think what do I do to them that may irritate them this can kind of help us understand you know ourselves a little better then I flippantly said there are things that I do that probably irritate you oh boy did he jump all over that I'm telling you he started listing them out before I could stop him he had a good five things already out of his mouth and I'm just like, whoa, 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 slow down there, boy. I took a deep breath before I said anything, and then I talked about parenting and, and training and trying to mold him into be, being a, a, a great man of God, that that was my job. And sometimes that meant I needed to correct him. See, sometimes we think something is punishment, when in reality God is training us, training us to become great men or great women of God. Jacob has faith in him that has waned over the years. And God has to feed, feed it with the grain from Egypt given to him by a son he doesn't even know that's still alive right now. 
And he's going to nourish him and, and get him ready to make a trip to Egypt where he'll reunite with the son. And then they will all move to Egypt as a huge family. In a sense, it's a type of heaven for the rest of Jacob's life. It is true the Israelites had to escape, you know, Egypt 400 years later. But while Jacob and Joseph were alive, they were treated with the utmost respect in Egypt. And his faith will grow there. Jacob used to have great faith. And he'll get it back again. How many of us would say, man, I used to have a lot of faith? I used to have a lot of faith, and then something happened, and it started waning. And I need to get my faith back. Something happens, things change, even, you know, even bad things happen, and now your faith is small. Allow God to nourish it, to feed it, and the, you know, gain it back what you once had. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. My son, do, make, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not a true son or daughter at all. Do I go out as a father of Brandon and discipline other children? No. Now, children would become really good friends with the families. You know, there's that level of trust. You can say something to the child, but I don't, I don't ground them to the room. I don't make them, you know, stuff like that. No, because he's not a legitimate son of mine. You know what I'm saying? But my children, I do that for. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who discipline us, and we respected them for it. That comes later on, not usually at that same age. How much more should we, you know, should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They discipline us for a little while while, they, uh, while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for, for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level the paths of your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. You know, at one point, Jacob wrestled with God, and he got a new name, Israel. The Lord disciplined him uh, and dislocated his hip during that time. And I don't know if you've ever gone through something like that. I've seen it happen to people on the football field and so forth when I used to be an athletic trainer. It is very painful, and you walk with a limp for a long time. Now, with modern medicine and all that, you can heal a lot quicker. Back then, think about it. 3,800 years ago or so? <laughs> oh, man, I'm sure he walked with a limp the rest of his life. But I know his soul was limping at this point. And God desires to heal that. The good actions of his good son, Joseph, are going to help this man heal. This is the truth we need to think about before moving on. Every Jacob, man or woman here, every Jacob needs a Joseph. Every Jacob needs a Joseph to do good for them, to do good to them. It is that good 
that is the healing. His new name is Israel. He is the father of every Jewish person on the planet today. His son Joseph saves Israel, and it becomes a nation. Seventy people in 1800 B.C. I mean, think about it. It's interesting. Egypt is full of Gentiles, and he saves them by following God's lead. Therefore, God uses Joseph to save both the Jew people, the Jewish people, and the Gentile people. God loves people. Joseph, and this is what's really cool. Think about it. And I can type this up in a different form and, and give this to you. But I, this is amazing because Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a figure type of Christ who comes both to save the Jews and the Gentiles. The New Testament is a foreshadowing in the Old... I mean, the New Testament uh, Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament Joseph. There are hints of what God would do in Genesis as the ultimate author. Author God is, in a sense, at the beginning of the book, foreshadowing what's going to happen at the end of the book. It's a beautiful thing about the Scripture. The Holy Spirit brings it all together. Here you have a deeply loved son sent by his father to hostile brothers who attacked him. You know, Joseph taking bread and cheese and all that kind of stuff to his sons that were out taking care of the animals. And they attack him. Shepherds witness the story. The son himself predicts what will happen and is hated for it. He is rejected, stripped, beaten, thrown into a pit to be handed over to Gentiles by a man named Judah in exchange for silver coins. The former wealthy young man becomes a servant. Everything he touches is blessed. When tempted, he does not sin. Falsely accused in innocence, he presents no defense. He's arrested and put with other criminals. Two of, the, two of them named, he, predict, he predicts deliverance, the bread and the wine. Wow, imagine that, bread and wine. What does that have to do with New Testament? What does that have to do with Jesus? You see what I'm saying? The baker and the wine servant. They're part of the story. He's specifically asked to be remembered. One of the two criminals is pardoned. He is 30 years old when this happens. The numbers three and seven keep appearing in the story, specifically three days and seven years. There are powerful Gentile rulers making big decisions who are very impressed with the prisoners standing before them. He is honored among the Gentiles while despised by his brothers. In other words, the Jewish people. The people are instructed to do whatever he says to do. He's given a Gentile bride. He forgives what has been done to him. He is faithful. He's given a, a, God, a God-given plan to bless the rest of the world with bread. He saves the world from, from death during the seven-year period. The brothers fear him and do not recognize him. They sit at a dinner where he serves them, preparing for them before he says farewell. The discovery of a cup causes sorrow. Later, a man who who everyone thinks is dead is actually found alive, bringing salvation to the Jewish nation. 
bringing redemption, bringing forgiveness, bringing compassion, bringing rescue. At the end of the story, he brings his family to, with him. He basically brings them back to live with him in a wonderful place given to them where they dwell together. I mean, to me, this is an amazing story. Genesis prepares us for what happens in the future because the life of Joseph reflects upon the life of Christ. Now, is Joseph Christ? No, he's a type of Christ. Joseph is still a man, but he's foreshadowing what Christ would actually do for you and I in the New Testament because that's exactly what happens to Jesus. And he's preparing a place for us to come and be with him. So, feed the faith and starve the fear. Because Jesus is our salvation. He's our redemption. He's our forgiveness. He's our compassion. He's our rescue. Because at the end of the story, guess what? We get to go be with him. That's the end of the story. And really, it's the beginning of the story, if you get my drift. So, well, I am overtime. So, let's... Let's stand up and pray as the, uh, I guess, announcements and the worship team are going to come on up. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for foreshadowing what you would do. We thank you for uh, giving us, uh, you know, faith to live on and that we, would, that we would feed that faith on a daily basis. That when, when fear happens in our lives, that we would just starve that fear. That we would look to you that we see the scriptures and we see the great things that happen in our lives and we attribute the great things to you and and some of the negative things we look at and say, Lord, are you disciplining me? What do you want me to do in my life? What do you have that, that you want me to change? I can't rely on the old excuses, Lord, but I need your help in changing. Now the Lord bless, uh, bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and may his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.